I wonder this morning how many of us would say you take the Bible literally. It's an interesting phrase. It's one that's used quite a bit. Um, I wonder as well how many aren't quite sure what we mean by that, Um, because that could be a loaded phrase. Uh, We're going to dive into a passage together this morning. That's a prime example of why defining that really matters, uh, and even more why taking Scripture seriously uh, is maybe a more significant thing to, to commit to. Um, what does it mean to take something literally? Well, a uh, common definition is to be literal is to take the, a word at its most basic sense, uh, to, to not use metaphor or allegory. So clearly we have places in Scripture where that isn't the case, right? We have metaphor, we have allegory. In fact, one of the most uh, well-loved passages of Scripture is Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. Does God literally make us lie down in green pastures? Did anyone lie down in a green pasture this week? No. Did you? Did you really? Somebody did. Um, that, that, I didn't see that coming. Um, he, light, he leads me beside quiet waters. We understand this is metaphor, right? This is word pictures to give us an understanding of the way God acts as a shepherd overseeing us and caring for us in our lives. So we, we understand when we come to things like poetry that maybe we don't take that literally, right? And then in other places, in fact, the majority of Jesus' teaching is in parable, which by nature is allegory. It's telling a story to make a point. When Jesus talks about the good sower, the point isn't actually sticking seeds in the ground or a farmer. The point is the stories telling us something through allegory. So even in those things we recognize, there are limits to the idea of taking Scripture seriously. But what about those times that it isn't so obvious? Uh, when we come to places that we read in the Bible, something that seems to be straightforward, and yet we aren't quite sure how we're to understand it or, or even more how to apply what we read. We're often forced more than we realize as readers, as we come to Scripture, to make a number of decisions of how we're going to interpret and apply what we're reading. This is in part because most of us, if you're like me, you're not completely fluent in Hebrew and Greek, not only the language, but the cultures and the customs and all of those things. I'd love to say I'm an absolute expert in those, but I'm learning new things every day still. Um, we're interpreting, and, and as we read, we're doing that far more sometimes than we recognize. So this morning's maybe a little different than a typical Sunday morning because we're going to talk process a little bit of what it looks like to take the Scripture seriously um, as we come to what's a really disputed and rather difficult passage. Um, step number one in this process, by the way, when we come to things we're not quite sure about, is to ask God to lead us by his spirit as we teach. So let's just practice that together this morning. I'm going to pray. Father, we ask that as we uh, take a look at this section in 1 Corinthians 14, we ask that you would challenge our assumptions. Um, God, that you would give us grace, give us wisdom. Uh, we'd ask nothing less than you would speak to us by your spirit this morning. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, we ask in Jesus' name. It's a pretty good start, right? So let's cut to the chase. We're going to read two verses this morning uh, that are a source of contention within the church. Uh, They're a place where various viewpoints uh, seem at times to almost go through logical gymnastics to to force these passages to say one thing or another. I'm going to put them on the screen, and then we're going to sort of begin to work through this question of what do we do 
with passages such as this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you'd like to turn there. We're going to look at the larger passage, but I, I want to start here because this is where the contention is. You, maybe you'll understand. Women should remain silent in the churches. I don't see what could possibly be contentious in this passage, right? Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Verse 35. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So just side note, we've already broken that this morning by having women singing on stage and speaking, right? So at some level, we obviously aren't taking this completely literally. What's at issue with these passages? Why does it matter that we take Scripture seriously? Well, I would say these two verses in particular... What's at stake is nothing less than the, the ability for women to participate in the church and really the value and honor that we place on women in the church. So we're forced with this choice, right? It seems, do we silence women or are we now people who don't take the scriptures literally? What, what do we do with that? Again, what do we mean when we say we take the Bible literally? Well, generally, if we're honest... What we actually mean without realizing it when we make that statement is, I take my interpretation of the Bible literally. Okay? Let's start there. That's just truth. Again, unless you are an expert in original languages and things of the like, can we start there that we just agree? when we, If we say we take the Bible literally, what we're saying is, I take my interpretation of the Scriptures, maybe the way they were taught to me literally. Again, I would argue that a much more helpful position is to say I take the scriptures seriously Uh, because actually you can take the scriptures literally and yet not take them seriously not do study not dig in and when we say that we take something literally again it's an interpreted a reality all of us in this room this morning myself included we come to the scriptures with our own views with our own assumptions, many of which we don't recognize we even have. They come from culture. They come from experience. It's, it's the way things have been taught to us. And so in short, we come with bias, all of us. We come with bias. We assume we know what something means or we assume various aspects of what we read. So the problem with this phrase of I take the Bible literally or I take scriptural literally is that I'm defining what literal means. So I'm sort of the judge and jury on, on even what that means when I use that phrase. That's, that's why I'm way more a fan of saying I take the Scriptures seriously. They're authoritative. I'm not messing around. I have a very high view of these. But again, to say I take them literally, I would, I would go as far as saying it's almost dishonest because we're not recognizing our bias and our assumptions and our role of interpreting what we're reading. Taking Scripture seriously means slowing down. It means asking questions. It means when we see a passage that maybe even seems contradictory to other places in Scripture or it seems confusing or an outlier or just in this case hard, rather than just gloss by it, and it'd be really easy to skip past this section on Sunday morning, right? Just move on, pretend it's not there. Rather than gloss by it, we want to dig in and really come with humility and seeking to understand what's being said, why it's being said, and what that means for us, okay? So, again, 
the next step, we've, we've asked God's spirit to be at work in us. We're trusting for that. But the next step as we come, especially to something that's a couple sentences, maybe a verse, two verses. If we want to understand that, if we want to take scripture seriously, the first step is to take a step back and to look at understanding this is set in some sort of context. We don't just lift out a sentence from scripture, ignore everything around it. In this case, let's do that together. We're going to jump back to verse 26, if you will, if you have your Bible Again, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'll put it up on the screen. We're going to pick up in verse 26. What shall we say then, brothers and sisters? This is Paul writing to this church in Corinth. When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, and everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. Now, we went through some of this last week. Verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet uh, in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, uh, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. I like the idea of discerning, talking about it, discussing, understanding. Verse 30, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be encouraged or instructed and encouraged. Remember, the past few weeks we've talked about the focus here is this is a church that was self-seeking. They were not seeking to build each other up. And part of what Paul is trying to focus them back to is in everything you're doing, come with this intention and this focus of building others up in the church body. Verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. The idea here is, you can keep yourself under control. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And then we come to this. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And then he says this, or did the word of God originate with you? Okay, something's going on here. Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. You can hear again, there's a corrective tone here pretty clearly. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So when Paul makes a statement about women, it isn't in a vacuum. In fact, it comes in the midst of a section much longer than this. It begins in chapter 12, uh, where Paul is um, writing specifically into response to some problems going on in the worship services. If you'll remember, even in another step back, it's important to, to recognize that First and Second Corinthians... Um, are part of this ongoing conversation between Paul and this church. We, we've discussed the fact that 1 Corinthians actually follows an earlier letter. We know that because of some things Paul says in this letter around chapter 5. And then it's very clear from chapter 7 on that not only did Paul send an earlier letter, but they've sent a letter of response to Paul, and he's answering these various questions. And we also know from chapter 1 that this individual, Chloe, some people from her household have come to Paul and reported some problems of what's taking place in this church. So none of this is in a vacuum. In this larger section, 
beginning in chapter 12, is much more corrective than it is instructive. And what I mean by that is this isn't just some weekly Bible lesson that Paul says, oh, by the way, I want you to know this. But specifically, this is correcting problems that exist in this church. And in this section, these problems are centered around disorder, uh, disagreement, people apparently talking over the top of each other, all sorts of things going on. And at the core of that, consistent through these uh, passages from chapter 12 on, it seems that there's this core issue that they're misusing this um, speaking in tongues. And again, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. It's sort of become their litmus test, if you will, for who's spiritual and who's not. And last week we saw from our reading that it's in fact disup- disruptive. It's not building other people up. It's, it's causing problems in their church. And so back in chapter 12, Paul expresses the importance of this diversity of the way God gifts different people in the church and the importance that all of us in our different gifting are working together and allowing God to work through us so that our church can be built up. It isn't just this one thing that's a test of whether or not you're spiritual. If you'll remember in chapter 13, Paul goes as far as saying, it doesn't matter if you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels. If you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. In fact, he, he says it's like a noisy gong, and you might remember that phrase and spe- specifically refers back to some of their pagan experience, and he's maybe saying, you sound like pagans rather than people who follow Christ. Chapter 14, as we've seen, he gets practical. First last week, really focusing on this idea that what you're saying needs to at least be intelligible. People need to be able to understand it. If it's just words coming in the air that no one understands in your worship service, that doesn't build anyone up. And then in this passage, he focuses on this idea of being orderly, not being chaotic. Again, last week, we saw these really basic principles like don't all speak at the same time. Take turns. Things we learned in grade school, right? Uh, And he's having to reflect on these really simple principles to this congregation that I still would love to know what this looked like when they gathered. It sounds loud and messy and out of control, right? He says, everyone comes with something to give, but don't talk over the top of each other. And do everything, again and again, do everything for the purpose of building other people up. Suggesting instead that maybe they're trying to puff themselves up. He's actually used that language. So this is all pouring out of this major issue that this letter is focused on in its entirety, which is this church is divided. And part of what's causing this division is this chaos, this disorder, this lack of desire to build one another up when we come together. And so in verse 29, he begins to give these very specific directions, specifically about how prophecy is to work, speaking essentially the words of God. He says only two or three should speak. And then the others should weigh carefully what is being said. It suggests this is instructive and there's something communal going on in discerning what's been said and understanding it, maybe figuring out how to apply it. Verse 33 reads, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches. So again, the issue here is disorder. And then we get these two verses about women followed by this rebuke to everyone and then a few more words about prophecy in the church and is brought together at the end of this section in verse 39 again just to put these on screen it says therefore my brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way this is his emphasis throughout 
this section. So one of the things we need to understand as we come to these two verses is they're in the context of Paul correcting disorder in a church. They're in the context of Paul not saying, here's some new information, but you need to fix this. You're out of line. You're all stepping over each other. People are talking over each other. There's disorder. Disorder in the way they're speaking in tongues, speaking over the top of each other, disorder in their prophecy, disorder in the way they're responding to prophecy. And then we get the specific word to the Corinthian women. And after that, this conclusion of, again, calling them out of disorder and into this orderly way of building one another up in their gatherings. So again, as we seek to understand these two verses that may cause some friction with different viewpoints, we need to understand they come in a context. They're spoken within the context of something Paul is speaking to. There's disorder that needs to be corrected. And apparently some of this disorder is coming from women in the congregation. It seems to relate specifically to this practice of prophesying and then weighing together what's been spoken. Okay, so we have the context piece maybe down. Doesn't necessarily answer all of our questions. So kind of the next step here is to look at some of the issues within the text itself. Um, We might call those grammatical issues that impact how we understand this. Um, and what we think a literal interpretation might be. One of the interesting examples of this is, depending on what translation you have, if you're looking at your Bibles, some of them read this way. Verse 33 is um, one paragraph, or it's not. Um, Back here, let me bring the two examples up. Here's one way that your Bible probably reads. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Break. Next paragraph where verse 34 starts, women should remain silent in the churches. Now, if we change that, some of the other translations read this way. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then new paragraph, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. You can see there's a bit of a different emphasis just on where that break is. And by the way, the reason there's a bit of a dispute there is it just isn't clear in the Greek. We don't get the same punctuation we do in English. Interestingly, um, if you go back, you may not know the verse numbers weren't there originally. Those were added later. First the chapters came, and then um, in the 1500s, uh, we got verse numbers added to help readers with this. Can you see the difference, by the way, in, in where that break is and how that maybe applies our, or affects our understanding? Um, that's an interpretive decision. That's an example of an interpretive decision. By the way, those verse numbers, if you'll notice, you can see where the verse numbers made the break because 33 and then 34, but some of our translations almost have a 33A and B and make that break in the middle. If you go back to the early King James, a number of the earlier translations, you'll see it break the way the verse uh, numbers do, whereas in our modern translations, it's about a 50-50 break. Fortunately, these aren't all that common in Scripture, but we do come to some of these places where because we're coming from one language to another, it's really easy to sort of cause difference in understanding by the way we translate things. Um, Now, what does Paul say? Because there are some things that are clear. If we go back again 
We're not going to run from these verses, apparently. I keep putting them on the screen. Um, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. By the way, if this is your first Sunday here, this is a weird first passage to deal with when you're here. Can we just be honest about that? Um, So Paul uses the word, a word that gets translated silent. Uh, We see that in verse 34. And by the way, that isn't the first time he uses that word. I'll I'll bring, I think I have the slide here. If you go back to verse 28, that same Greek word is here. It says, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. It's this idea of holding your tongue, okay? Not speaking over each other. Then in verse 30, it gets translated a little different. It says, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. The idea is be quiet, um, hold their tongue. It's in those two cases, clearly situational and a temporary thing, not this eternal, you should always be silent. Um, It's akin to holding your peace, holding your tongue, waiting for the right time to speak. And if Paul's using the word in that manner through this section, it probably makes sense that he would use it the same way here. That it isn't a forever and always silent, but rather a holding your tongue. Again, the purpose is to avoid disorder. Again, notice when Paul says women are to remain silent and are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says, the question comes, what law? Because you don't find that in the Old Testament. Um, And there are varying views on this. I'll just be honest. There are some that would say, hey, we have examples of Roman law, and this is a cultural thing. We have some that say, hey, look at the rabbinical Jewish law. It comes from the way they interpreted the Old Testament. Some would say, hey, this is inferred out of the creation account in Genesis. But the reality is, We've got to make an interpretive decision there. It isn't really clear, but what is clear is um, Paul doesn't quote something from the Old Testament. By the way, that word submission uh, can also be translated with the idea of orderly, which contextually makes a lot of sense here. I, I point this out again to underscore that we we're constantly making these interpretive decisions as we read, and we don't realize it. We hear the word submission, and if you're like me, it sounds really negative. It sounds like something you're forced on, a role that's, that's put upon you. And yet in Scripture, it's clear that all of us, male and female, are called to this voluntary submission to one another in Christ. It isn't a forced thing, but it's a choice we make. It seems to be holding one's tongue for the good of others for the sake of order instead of disorder. And one of the challenges of this passage, again, this is one of those tools we use. And when we come to something and we're like, what do I do with this? We go, somewhere else in this letter, did Paul speak on something like this? And if we go back to chapter 11, if you were with us when we studied that, this is another interesting passage where he talks about women covering their heads when they pray or prophesy so as not to bring dishonor on their husbands. Paul is saying in chapter 11, when you pray and prophesy, do it this way. He's saying this to the women. And it would be kind of strange if three chapters later he says you can't do that. You have to be silent. So we have a little bit of something to figure out just within the context of this letter. Paul's just said in chapter 14, let two or three prophets speak, then everyone should weigh their words. This is a clue to what he's talking about. We actually see this in verse 35 as well. There's some clarification of what type of 
uh, speech is to be held by these women. Because he continues in verse 35, if you want to inquire or ask about something, um, they should ask their own husbands at home. This gives us a clue to what's going on and causing this disorder and maybe calls from some silence. Again, two or three prophets speak and then everyone weighs their words. The idea is to discern, to talk about what's been said. And then you get to this verse 35 that says to these women, if you want to inquire, if you want to ask questions, if you want you know, to speak out, learn something, ask your husband at home. Um, this suggests the women in Corinth were probably responding to prophecy with questions that in some way were disruptive. That's probably the context of what he's addressing here, which is much narrower than just, hey, women, always, always be quiet in church, right? Um, it's been suggested. By the way, there's a lot of different views about what that means. Again, I'm going to be honest with you. This is a very disputed text. Um, it's been suggested that, that maybe they're asking out loud in a disruptive manner of their husbands, what does this mean? Um, it's possible women and men were even in separate parts of the room and they're calling across to each other. We don't know. Um, it's also possible that there's chit-chat going on. Some think that's kind of the case and that's disruptive. Um, or it's possible that a husband is the one speaking the prophecy and then the wife publicly is questioning it or speaking or correcting, which you can see would be kind of uncomfortable. Um, the point is that Paul is calling the church out of disorder. So whatever he's referring to here is causing disruption. It's causing disorder. It's causing a problem. And that's his concern. It's also possible, by the way, that similar to what addressed in chapter 11 on this subject, uh, it could be that wives were speaking in a way that was culturally shameful to their husbands. We're not sure. But the point is Paul is asking women in this church to hold their tongues because whatever is taking place is disruptive and it's become problematic in their gatherings. It's not building people up. Again, the last couple of weeks we've talked about the difference in our attitude between coming to a worship service for the purpose primarily of getting something versus coming with the intention of giving something. And that's one thing we've seen through this letter that maybe is even quite different than our own culture, that Paul's calling these men and women both as they come to gather as the church, their priority is to actually allow God to work through them that they could build one another up versus coming so that I can get the thing I want out of Sunday morning or whenever they were gathering. So this idea of coming to give rather than to get, um, coming with this desire to build others up, this is what Paul is calling them to. And as we go through chapter 4, we might also see that some maybe are coming to prove something, to prove that I'm spiritual, to prove that God's working through me. Maybe that plays into this as well. Uh, that would actually make sense with what immediately follows after verse 35. If we go back to verse 36, he says, or, or did the word of God originate with you? Like This is a rebuke. Um, are you the only people it has reached? As though maybe there's some puffing up as he's addressed earlier in this letter. He again, goes on, by the way, if anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, this isn't specific to women, just so we know. If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they'll be ignored. Kind of strong words, right? Um, 
we do well to remember as we approach a text like this another aspect. This goes back to this idea of culture bias. We live in a world where women have rights they didn't have back then, right? And so when we look at the idea of a woman being silent or a woman being submitted, submissive, we see that as removing some rights from women. We're actually looking at this text from like the other side of where Paul's audience looked at this. The very idea that he has to say this and regulate this is, in my mind, evidence of the revolutionary nature of the church because he's writing to a group of people that live in a day in which, sorry wives, you were property of your husbands. You couldn't legally be a witness in court because you weren't considered reliable. Uh, many women didn't have access to education, which may also be part of that ask your husbands at home because they're the ones who got to go to school. That's the way the world worked. The fact that Paul even has to say this to people in this culture is evidence, in fact, that these women are enjoying a radically different reality than they did in the rest of the world as they come to the church. We see it from the other side and assume Paul's taking something away when, in fact, that's not what's going on, regardless of how we understand this. That's cultural bias, by the way. That's assuming that as we read it, Paul gets what we're, he's, he's reading it from our, or writing it from our point of view rather than the audience he wrote to. I, I can't underscore enough how hard it is not to read that in to the text as we read. And this is part of where we really need God's spirit to, to work on us because we read our values and our culture and impose them upon things that were written in an entirely different culture and set of values. And the reality is I, I could spend a lot of time this morning going through all of the evidence in the New Testament that speaks to how radically pro-woman the church was from its beginning. In fact, one of the things that's interesting in, in contrast to this idea of women remaining silent in the church is we look at example after example of women who are clearly in leadership serving positions in the early church as we go through the various letters that we have. There are numerous examples. We have women who are prophetesses as well. In fact, that was this you know, prophecy that everyone was looking to from the Old Testament that this day will come in these last days where men and women will have dreams and will prophesy. And we have this reality that women played this unique role in their culture in the church. They had incredible freedom. But we impose our understanding on that. So, Let's talk about, again, some of the things of what it means to take Scripture seriously. First, um, understand that we really are reliant on God's Spirit for understanding the Bible, all of it. And so we come with some humility if we understand that, right? Uh, when we come to any you know, verse or a couple of verses, we really need to step back and understand the context in which it's written. We need to take some time to consider how words are used and recognize that we're reading an English translation with different grammar, different definitions of words. It doesn't mean we can't understand the scriptures if we don't have a doctorate degree, but it does mean we should take them seriously and not assume we always know what the plain reading of a text is because we're reading that through our culture, through our bias. Sometimes I, I find that what I once thought was literal was very much through the lens of my own bias. And I'm challenged in that sometimes. So we talked a little bit about a process. So then 
After all that, what are we to do with this passage? Still can't work around that one, right? What do we do with it? Side note, I'll just mention, we do not have time to get into this this morning, but there's another unique, peculiar aspect of verses 34 and 35 of 1 Corinthians 14. Different than anything else in Paul's writing. If you go back to all of the early manuscript evidence, stay with me here, this little academic, but we don't just have like one Greek manuscript we go back to interpret. We have a whole giant load of fragments and, and whole manuscripts of various parts of the Bible that come from different cultures, different languages, different times that date way back. And in this situation, what's interesting is early on in the church, you had sort of this East church split and West church split. So like Western Europe, Eastern Europe. The Western texts, many of them place verse 34 and 35 after verse 40, not where they are in, in our reading. Whereas a number of the other texts place them where we see them. And then we have this other text that actually, it almost looks like something in the margins. And so there, just to be open, there is some, some question as to why that's the case. And does that even question the, the veracity of this being Paul's original writing? Don't have time to get into that. I just want to note that is an issue with this text. If we're going to be open about some things, I want to point that out to you. Fortunately, that is really rare. Um, but it's important to know. So what do we do? Let's sit back to what we know. We are to come together with the goal, all of us, of serving and of giving, not of proving anything or for the purpose of getting something. We come as we gather with the intention first and foremost to serve, to love one another, to respond to God, to give. Second, What's clear throughout this passage to all of us is that we honor one another often by holding our tongues. It's clear with the prophesying, it's clear with the speaking in tongues, it's clear with the statement to women. There was apparently a specific disruptive issue coming from these Corinthian women, but I would argue that it still applies to all of us through this passage that if we're going to cause disorder or cause disunity or cause disruption, the loving thing to do is to hold our peace. Maybe wait our turn sometimes. Again, from a contextual standpoint, um, two things. One, if we're going to be humble, I just want to say up front, it's okay if we disagree about how this passage gets applied because there's a whole varying set of viewpoints about this. What that means, and these are all people, by the way, who take Scripture very seriously. These aren't people who are just trying to explain something away. Uh, full disclosure, I grew up thinking that meant women are supposed to be quiet in church, period. That was what I was taught. And it wasn't until I really dug in that I started to wrestle some questions. And sometimes, because of that, I take the Bible literally. You don't take the Bible literally. We assume that people who disagree with us don't take Scripture seriously, and that just isn't often the case. Um, so we should come to this with some humility and some openness that maybe we don't exactly understand how to apply this. There's a diversity of viewpoints from godly people who take the scriptures quite seriously. But, but I'd go further and say what we do know really clearly, and I've said this a number of times, is from chapter 10 on, there is a specific principle that is getting worked out in everything Paul writes. And here it is, if you'll remember this. Um, oh, I didn't even realize I had these slides. 
one of those mornings. Here we go. Remember this? Some of you have been through this series. I hope you're remembering this passage. Paul has to write to this church, quoting them. Apparently they said, I have the right to do anything. Imagine that. I have the right to do anything you say, but, I, but everything is not beneficial. Again, he quotes them. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. This is the viewpoint of the group of people he's writing to. I can do whatever I want. You can't stop me. Right? And Paul has to speak to that. What does he say? Verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. That principle is underneath everything else he writes in the rest of this letter. We see it played out again and again. And that is a guiding principle that should drive our understanding as well. What I would say from that is all of us must be willing to lay down our rights for the good of others. That is not a gender-specific statement. All of us must be willing to lay down our rights for the good of others. All of us must be vigilant to ensure we aren't seeking our own way, our own preferences, our own wants when we gather. The church is unified when people lay down their rights for the good of the people around them in love. When we all do that, it is beautiful. When we come together with humility, seeking the good of others first. Now, in the case of the Corinthian church, it appears one of the groups that needed to be called to this were the women in the church. I don't know exactly what was going on there. I would love to have a peek into it. I would say this this morning to the guys. Please don't use this passage against women. Don't misuse this. Paul is correcting a problem in the church in Corinth. I don't believe Paul wrote this with the express intent of putting women in their place. He's correcting disorder. Don't misuse this against women. And I would say this, hopefully this is a reminder to all of us as we deal with a text like this this morning. We need to have a deep commitment to taking the scripture seriously. One of the things that I, I find really, really sad is there's a whole lot of people who claim, I take the Bible literally, who've never written it, never read it. Of course, he didn't write it. There are a number of people that would die on that you know, hill for, I take the Bible literally, and yet they've never read it. That's a pretty difficult uh, place to, to, to defend, right? We, as followers of Christ, are called to take the Scriptures seriously. And part of what that requires is us being willing to wrestle through difficult questions together with grace and with humility. Together to trust God's Spirit to lead us. Again, this specific issue may well be a place that we disagree we need to be humble in that. We need to walk with one another. And all of us need to continually, myself certainly included, be asking for and trusting God's Spirit to continue to lead and teach us that we would have deeper understanding together. And then finally, I'd say this. This is a reminder that the calling of Christ is hard. 
There's no way around that. The calling of Christ to every single one of us, again, is to lay down our rights, to lay down our desires at times for the sake of others. This will always be costly. This will always be uncomfortable. This will always be hard. But that is precisely what we're called to. I'm reminded of another letter that Paul wrote. This is to the church in Philippi. You might be familiar with these words. This is Philippians 2. Paul writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or attitude as Christ Jesus. What is that? Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the mindset we're to emulate to follow in our lives. The way of Jesus for all of us is laying down our rights and even our lives for the sake of others. And there's a simple reason we're called to this that we do well not to overlook. This isn't a religious exercise. This is a response to God's love for us. The, way, the reason we're called to the way of Christ is because of what Christ has done for us. Jesus, who came and to his disciples, said, I didn't come to be served, but I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus, who we're told in numerous places, went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, our wrongdoing, to take our shame upon himself so that we could be forgiven and offered new life. It's an incredible message. That is the core of our faith, is that we aren't earning something from God, but God has so deeply loved us that He's taken on Himself the cost of reconciling a relationship we broke. That we're offered complete and total forgiveness, and we're called into a new life, which includes a new way of living, which is seeking to follow the way of Jesus. So the way that we respond to God's love is we receive with joy and and, in faith this incredible message that God's forgiven us and wants to have a relationship with us. We respond to that. But then the way we continue to respond to that in how we live our lives is what Paul writes in Philippians, that we commit to this difficult, costly way of Christ, which is laying down my life, my rights for the sake of others. And I'll tell you, friends, the more we do that, the more beautiful this place is going to be. It isn't to earn points. It's a response in recognition of the depth of God's love for us. Let's pray. Father, I don't know if we've gotten any more clarity on these verses this morning. I hope so. I hope more than anything you would give us humility. You give us a deep love for one another. That you would remind all of us to this call to lay down our rights and our lives for the people around us. To think first of the good of others before ourselves. And Father, I would ask specifically that you would give us a deeper hunger and desire to take your word seriously and to spend time wrestling and grappling where things aren't clear, to to do that together as a community of faith. And God, we would ask this morning as we did as I began, by your spirit, would you give us deeper understanding into these words we've looked at this morning? Would you give us a deeper understanding and sense of the life you're calling us to in Christ? It's in his name we ask. Amen.